Well, hope everyone had a good break. I see that pretty much the same faces that were here on uh, Friday of last week. <laughs> um, I have to do something about this. We didn't complete our discussion of London, and as we move closer to the rhetorical question that I asked at the very beginning of the course, if we are at the intersection of two streets called West Peachtree and Peachtree, as part of a constitutional frame of the city of Atlanta, the question is, how do we get here? And the path, as I mentioned then, um, does not lead through uh, South Africa or Australia or Peru or um, sort of any other place, but rather it comes directly from London. But before we, um, before we uh, dispense with London, I want to also talk about Spanish and French colonial enterprises in the New World, because it's easy for us to forget that, in fact, um, there are three sort of large traditions that in the United States we actually have inherited from these European colonial powers. So to continue with London, and just to reiterate where we left off, uh, the west end of London, which is down in here, with the city of Westminster and the Thames, running at the bottom, the east end over here with the actual city of London in between, this being the liberties of Westminster. These were land grants that had been granted uh, to various nobles, uh, dukes and so forth, including the Duke of Bedford, whose land we see here, who built his own house there on a convent, the site of a garden that was associated with the medieval convent, and based on these precedents of the ends of court and uh, so forth, um, I have absolutely no idea why it did that. Um, the ends of court and uh, those taken from the middle and inner temple going all the way back to uh, the 12th century. The, um, the Duke of Bedford built Covent Garden, which was the first attempt to create a planned residential square uh, in London. This was different from the piazzas of Italy or different from the uh, royal places of France, primarily because it was entirely a speculative real estate development. Now, the British have a very different um, system from ours where um, the original landowner retains title to the land and builds houses or other buildings in which then a tenant, uh, they call it an owner, but you lease it for 99 years. And then at the end of that 99 years, it comes up again for uh, renewal. Now, I think this is a peculiar, uh, <laughs> very peculiar uh, holdover from the Middle Ages, uh, which probably has its origins, its roots, somewhere in Roman Britannia. But all of that is sort of um, speculative on my part, and, and it's really not germane to this course. The importance is to understand um, the, the, this difference, and it is different. Um, so the Duke of Bedford um, was unsuccessful with Covent Garden, and um, eventually um, it converted into a market. It was designed by Inigo Jones, the first British architect to actually travel to Italy and to train um, uh, adopting these Renaissance principles of ground floor arcades and so forth around a regularized 
square. But the square developed as uh, an open market, and that will become significant because the descendants of, um, of Covent Garden, the residential squares that will develop throughout this entire area here uh, of the West End, will, um, will then engage in the fencing off, the enclosure of this central square uh, so that the only people who had access to it were those who had leases, ground leases, um, of the houses that were around that square. Um, the only one of these that remains intact from the 18th century is Bedford Square, which is uh, to be located uh, really at the intersection. You see it there in the red um, triangle. You can see that it's just, uh, here's Lincoln's Inn uh, that we see here also in uh, just up this road, this is called Tottenham Court Road, there was um, uh, a house of a noble there, and for a brief period, it actually was the seat of the British monarch. Uh, so Tottenham Court Road is a very different concept than Fifth Street, right? Fifth Street indicates what? Anybody? Huh? Say it loud. It's the fifth street from the first one. Now, if I lived on Tottenham Court Road, what would that indicate? In 1700, what would that indicate? I'm rich. Why would I be rich? Anybody? Because I'm living on a street or road that takes me to um, a great house, a manor house, uh, that was associated with the nobility, in this case, associated with the king. Um, if I live on Fifth Street, what does that signify? Only that I'm not on Fourth or Sixth, right? That's it. Uh, it's an index. So when you open up the dictionary, how is it organized? By those things that were associated with the crown? The king, the president, the senate, some traditional form of authority. No, it's organized how? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. In other words, it's an index. So um, I want to foreground that because that's a change that we will see developing as the ideas that uh, are hatched in these European colonial powers are transported to the new world and something quite different uh, emerges from that. So um, the descendant of the Duke of Bedford by uh, the middle of the, of the 18th century in the 1700s begins to develop land that he owns here. Again, as the city begins to push to the north and to the west, and uh, there we actually see the site of what will emerge as Bedford Square, again, the only uh, intact residential square uh, from this period. Now, the type of house, um, this is very important, was uh, what we would call a townhouse. And a townhouse means that you actually have steps and a front door, and you walk into a hall, and there's the living room. Um, it's really a single-family house that has been pushed up next to another one and another one and another one in a row. We would call these townhouses. Uh, it's a building type where uh, the living, the public parts of the house, the living, dining, and so forth, are typically on the ground floor and then the bedrooms are upstairs and the kitchen is either in the back or 
sort of in the basement. Um, this means it has a built-in front and a built-in back because you can only get light into the front and into the back. But for urban purposes, it's important because how would you put retail in here if I'm living upstairs? Right? I have to go through the tailor shop or the bakery or something in order to get to my bedroom. Right? You can't do it. You open the front door, you're in the domestic part of the house. This is very different from the old Roman insula type, the apartment building, where uh, because you're actually entering up to a second floor directly off the street or in through a courtyard that distributes you up, that means that the ground can actually be released for uh, retail and commercial purposes. So that you just plug a shop or you plug like the building we're in here, which along Fifth Street has uh, all this ground floor, as Starbucks and the bookstore and whatever these restaurants and so forth are here. Um, it's very different from an urban point of view. So this um, backyard, which um, today we would associate backyards with pleasure because uh, they're no longer associated with what they were originally intended for, and that was work. The backyard was where you rendered fat to make soap. It was where you uh, wrung the, ch the neck of the chicken. It was where you did the laundry. It was where you did all the things that were sort of messy and where you stored the coal or whatever you were using to um, heat yourself, which in a cold climate was very important. And then behind that, a second sort of house, which was associated with, the, if you were wealthy enough to have a horse and a carriage, uh, it was a carriage house. And so you had the stable or the carriage house, and then above that was typically the footman or the servant or somebody else who was working for you, for the family. Um, I remember as a child, being fascinated with the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, which came out when I was about eight or nine years old, of Peter Pan. And, you know, they're in the nursery up on the second floor in the window, if you've never seen the thing before. And there's this dog named Nana, and the dog is creating a problem, and so they put the dog out in the backyard, right? And I was always fascinated with this arrangement of this house. Long before I knew what I would be doing with my life, I was fascinated by this for some strange reason. Now, this would then, um, you could, one way, for example, that Frederick Engels uh, read this was that uh, was a division of wealth and poverty, that you had sort of out front fine silk and in the back tuberculosis. Uh, I've, it's the third time I've quoted, actually, Lewis Mumford, who, uh, that's his quote, but that is, um, that is um, uh, something in which you can sort of read the city uh, in this way. Now, because of the fire of 1666, um, they passed fire codes that had to do with, um, really, they're the, they're the the ancestor of modern fire codes that we have today, where you have rated walls, so that in uh, an apartment building or in a townhouse situation, the party walls, the walls that are adjoining another unit, would have to be of a material and would have to be of sufficient thickness to withstand a certain temperature for a period of two hours or four hours or something like that, right? It's called a rated wall. And um, that uh, meant that all the flus, let me go back to the plan view, that all the flus and the service, the, the gas traps coming out of the toilets, all had to come up in this cavity that we see here and that the fireplace had to be on one wall. Uh, now, for the architects in here, let me just say, this dimension is critical. 
from front to back because you cannot get light in here. We'll see what New York did with the revisions to the tenement laws in the 19th century, century trying to get light down into the interior of some of these, some of these buildings. But um, this dimension is important because you cannot get natural light into the interior part of the unit, right? It's very difficult to do. And um, I lived in an apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts once that had a bathroom like that. It just had a, a window here. And you open the window, and it was simply, a <laughs> simply an air shaft that went all the way up to the sky, and there were all sorts of dead pigeons and other kinds of things down in there. It was really not very pleasant, so I closed that window very quickly. But the law required that you had ventilation in the bathroom. Today, it's typically done by, by, uh, by uh, fans. But there's sort of a lot of implications about this particular type of house, which the British call a terrace house. Um, these fire codes then uh, were coded by the width of the street and the street type so that you had height limitations uh, based upon the width of the street that was associated uh, with the front of the unit. Uh, so within this area that we see here, Bedford Square is developed as a speculative real estate development. I should mention that this is actually old Somerset House, which if you go back and look at the previous maps, you will see and that this, in fact, was a separate property. So here's the Duke of Bedford's property. Here's Lord Somerset's property. And this ultimately will be willed to the city of Westminster, the government of Britain, actually, to create the British Museum, where at the height of the British Empire, they stole everything from the rest of the world and put it in there fair and square. Right? Napoleon did the same with the Louvre. Um, so the Earl of Bedford begins to uh, subdivide this, and here we see it in some detail. Now, the importance of this for this course is that here we have this row of terrace houses, here, here, and here. And then on the back side, we have more terrace houses. This is Tottenham Court Road that we see here. And this is called a muse, M-E-W-S, like a cat muse. I have no idea where that word comes from. And this one, for some reason, is called Tavistock Muse. We would call this an alley. And that becomes critical because this is the service to the back of those carriage houses. So if you had a horse, for example, you'd bring the horse in. Horse would go in here. You would then have this kind of backyard, which is really not much of a yard. It's um, a yard is um, derived from the same root word as garden, guard, yard, um, but um, it was really associated with work, and then you would have the living part of the house that opened out onto this little park. Now, based on the experience of Covent Garden, where that park actually uh, was free and open to everybody, and thus it developed as a kind of uh, place where a lot of um, people coming into London, both from the rural countryside, but also from other places, because London was growing, the economy in England was, you know, whenever you have a strong economy, it begins to attract people into the cities. I was in a conversation with um, the um, uh, head of city planning, uh, also teaches in China, in Shanghai, and he was telling me, he said, in confidence, he said, we, we cannot stop rural to urban migration, that the cities are growing so rapidly, we just cannot keep the infrastructure up, up to speed with the number of people who are actually moving in. And that was happening in London, and so Everybody began to congregate in this kind of huge swap meet at Covent Garden, which became, as Horace Walpole said, dangerous to walk through at night. So this had a fence around it. This was actually fenced, and the people who had who were the tenants here for 99 years 
got uh, for a dollar a year, they got a, uh, the equivalent of, of a pound a year or something. They, they got a key, and they could go over here into this little park and have picnics so the kids could run around, <coughs> dogs could go to the bathroom or whatever. This is what it looks like today, and I just want to sort of point this out. Here we see Tavistock Mews. Uh, this, Tottenham Court Road, over time, uh, developed into commercial and, um, and um, institutional uses. Actually, this is uh, the headquarters right here, of, uh, right here of NBC News in London. Um, and then you'll notice here along this property line here that um, these houses facing out onto this street have nothing to do with the British Museum. In fact, I was in the British Museum once on a Saturday not too long ago right there, to be specific. That's where the Elgin, Lord Elgin, took the, again, they stole them fair and square, uh, took the um, reliefs off the Parthenon, all the sculpture and of the pediment, and uh, put them in the British Museum. They have, a, they have uh, the Rosetta Stone is in the British Museum. It's amazing what's in there. Um, and someone pulled a fire alarm. And so the entire... Um, wing, this entire wing of the British Museum exited the building right there, and it was on a Saturday afternoon about 5 o'clock, and we came down the fire escape, and there were people sitting in the backyard of this house up here, sort of cooking hamburgers on the grill and having glasses of wine and kids running around and everything. It was really kind of funny in a way. Um, I don't know why I thought that was funny, but it was a false alarm, but it was just thousands of people sort of streaming through this person's backyard. Um, now, this is what that terrace house at Bedford Square looked like. So this is what I was talking about earlier, where if you have ground floor retail, how do you do that? You really can't. The whole building has to become um, office or become, uh, you know, hairdressers. Or in the case here of number 33, this is the Architectural Association School, very famous school of architecture, the oldest continuously operating school of architecture in the world, in fact, number 33 and number 34. Um, Bedford Square. And here you actually see the bedrooms upstairs and the sort of um, major rooms here and then here on the ground floor this kind of parlor. And then this park across the street where um, we, um, you know, you still have a key and you can still go over there if you happen to live there. Most of these have been converted into lawyers' offices and other kinds of things now because of its location in Bloomsbury, fairly center part of the city. There you actually see the carriage houses in the back and then this gap in between with a bridge connecting out of the kitchen. There you actually see here laundry and workspace in the basement. There's that bridge. There's the stables in the carriage house. Here's the mews. You access, I don't know why that's drawn that way, you access this this way. is the living area with the front parlor and then you come down and across the street is the park with sleeping and other things up here. This is where Peter Pan would come in through the window, and this is where they put the dog. <laughs> That's what it looks like from the side and the rear, and this is what it actually looks like from the interior. So this is what I'm talking about. This is a yard, so it's not associated with pleasure. It's associated with work. Um, here, actually, where things like electric dryers and you know, you now you buy your chicken at the market, uh, you know, it's already cut for you, et cetera. Um, it's freed a lot of this up either for parking vehicles 
um, or for um, or for um, pleasure, for having an actual garden. I should mention that um, these uh, these have now become quite fashionable. Um, in fact, Zaha Hadid, um, actually a very well-known architect, Pritzker Prize winner, actually her she lived in one of these. Um, And just to make the point about those strange ground leases, this is the office here of, uh, you can't read that, but that says Bedford Office. That's the office of the real estate company that's still owned by the descendants of the Duke and the Earl of Bedford. So you produce then these streets that look like this, which um, um, mean that you have to come up with some other way of integrating mixes of land use within, uh, within the urban fabric. There we actually see the British Museum backing up then to these terrace houses all in a row. And unlike um, the French example, which becomes really the model for the city on into, particularly into the 19th century, where you have a block, in this case a garden, but it's a block, a thick pochet of material and this case vegetable, but it could be mineral, in other words, building, in which the interior then, you access the interior from some point, um, and then the interior distributes you around. This allows then this larger frame, A, to communicate with B on a sort of monumental scale, the Arc de Triomphe and the Tuileries, or um, the Capitol building and the Lincoln Memorial, to use Washington, D.C., which is descended from um, this system that we see here on the left. On the right, in London, it, the, the alley, the mews, became really important because it meant that the land use had to change um, in the middle of the block. So you split the block by this uh, service alley, and then this part can convert over time, facing Tottenham Court Road, can convert to the headquarters of NBC News, to uh, office buildings and so on and so forth, and then the part with the yellow arrow can remain um, the same in its residential character, even if a lawyer is now running an office out of there or something, or an accountant is running an office out of there, or an architect is running an office out of there, the character stays the same. So you have this condition then where uh, the block is split, so the alleys become uh, crucially important uh, urbanistically in the extent to which you can accommodate a mix of land use. So this is very important and it's likely to be a question on the exam. Uh, now I want to fast forward to say that you know if we take a city like Atlanta not far from where we are, this is Peachtree Street that we see here. Uh, this is the High Museum, First Presbyterian Church. That's a, an apartment building called the Reed House. And this is the headquarters of Perkins and Will that we see right here. And we see a single block in which there's an alley that runs down this way in which the backside of that alley actually remains residential and the side of the block um, that is uh, facing Peachtree converts over time, even though it began life as single-family detached houses, uh, over time it converts to office and institutional uses of various kinds. Um, to diagram this, what we see then, if we code commercial, retail, institutional uses as pink and residential as yellow, 
and then the public space is, is sort of greenish-yellow, we see that uh, this sets a precedent which is very close to home in how Atlanta actually developed. Uh, both are, were the products of speculative real estate development. Um, you subdivide the land, you put in the streets, you improve the lots, and then over time, as the economy changes, the representational order or the economic order uh, changes to meet the fluctuating nature of the economy of the city. The structure, that is the constitutional order, remains the same. It's very different from Washington, D.C. or Paris. This is what it looks like today then, uh, just seeing the entire fabric of it. There is Bedford Square, and you'll notice a whole bunch more of these. Uh, this set a kind of a precedent, that's actually Lincoln's in Fields, a set of precedent that then would sort of be rolled out on a speculative basis on all of those parcels that we saw all the way up to Regent's Park, uh, which was actually a huge speculative real estate development begun by the Prince Regent, like Prince Charles is today, the Prince Regent, um, but then was eventually converted into um, a public park. Now, um, it is easy in the United States for us to forget that we are part of the colonial world. Uh, I've often thought of the United States as the wealthiest third world country in existence, right? The United States and Canada. Um, and I say that because we're still a developing nation. Uh, Atlanta was uh, only begun in... Um, 1840s. Um, I realized a few years back that, that I, as a resident of Atlanta, had actually passed the threshold to become listed um, on the National Register of Historic Places. Me. That's how long I've been here. So I've been here for, you know, over a third of the length of time Atlanta has been in existence. That's kind of a frightening thought, uh, but it points out that it's recent. And uh, I mention this because um, when Columbus, not knowing where he was going, not knowing where he had been, bumped into North and South America, the world doubled. And suddenly, uh, what was a relatively empty um, continent in North America uh, became available for European exploitation. Um, the primary actors in the sort of conquest of the New World, North and South America, the Americas, uh, were, were sort of in order, Spain, um, France, and England. And Portugal was a little involved, Brazil. Uh, the Dutch operated a little bit in New York, but not much. Uh, the Russians kind of fooled around with Alaska, but they sold it. Um, the, the three primary colonial powers that set, that, that sort of we ended up inheriting in the United States is really Spanish, French, and English. And so we'll concentrate on these three um, traditions. Now, before we do that, we'll come to England in the next lecture, but it's important to, to take a look at Spain. This is the city of Cordoba at one point in time, around 800 in the Common Era. It is the, thought to have been the largest city in the world. It was a Roman city. Actually, the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca 
who was the teacher of Nero, not a very good pupil, I presume, um, ultimately was born here. He was, he was a Jew, born here in Cordoba. And then due to um, the Moorish conquest of most of Spain, it fell into the hands of, the, um, of what's called Al-Andalus, still Andalusia, uh, which was the last part of Moorish Spain. These were people from what is now Morocco, and they were here for a very long period of time. And so there's almost no trace of a Roman city remaining. We can't find anything in its outline. Instead, what we see are these little cul-de-sacs and so forth that were imported and brought into as the, into um, Cordoba as the, um, as the city uh, slowly changed over time. Its constitutional order changed. Um, and much of this influence was retained uh, even after the reconquest in the 15th century uh, of, a common, of a common era. This is a Roman bridge, and what looks like a church is actually the great mosque of Cordoba. It's now a World Heritage Site, absolutely fantastic building. The reason it looks like a church is because that part of it actually was converted into a church um, under the reign of the Emperor Charles V, the same guy who had sacked Rome that led to the creation of, um, of um, the reconciliation to Cappadoglio um, with the Pope. So uh, when Charles V saw what his lieutenants were doing here, he stopped it. So this was never put into service for worship because Charles was a fairly smart guy and he realized this building was something that uh, should not be uh, should not be altered in this in this way. Uh, this is what it looks like from the outside. It roughly, we think, occupies uh, part of the site of the Roman Forum, which would follow the same pattern that we saw in York, York, where York Minster, the cathedral, is built directly on the site of um, of the uh, of the Forum. It's all walled about, uh, quite beautiful. You enter into this, the patio of the orange trees. Um, very beautiful. Uh, these were both an indexical system so that you could know where to leave your shoes. You were in the third row, fourth tree down, sort of like when you go to uh, um, a big parking deck and, and, and you have a ticket or something and it says the orange level, row 15 or something. You go to the airport, you know, H3 or something like that. This is where you would leave your shoes, the ablution fountain we see here before you enter the mosque to pray. It was an enormous building. It was built in phases over time. It was enormous, there we see it, because every male, uh, just to remind you, every male um, in the city uh, had to go there on Friday for Friday prayer. Uh, so there are a lot of shoes out in this courtyard. Um, it is a forest of columns made from spolio, Roman columns, and in the Lisbon earthquake that leveled the city of 1755, uh, this building, which, which in which damage occurred as far away as Rabat in Morocco, right? Uh, this building stood, and it stood because they adopted the old Roman method of putting lead plates between the capital and the column, which acted as a bushing, allowing movement like this without the thing falling down. Amazing, absolutely amazing. It was built out, as we see, in phases over time. That's the original mosque. It then is moved to this. It then is expanded out to here, this being the patio, and this is the, the um, uh, tower for the call to, to prayer, the minaret. Sevilla, very similar story. It's a, it's a Roman city. 
if we squint our eyes, we can sort of imagine somewhere in here that um, this was actually the Roman, sort of the pomerium that we see along here, but um, sort of like that. But, um, we, and we can assume here that this church, what's now a church, was actually built on top of the site of the forum. We have, again, a lot of these little cul-de-sac sort of streets and alleys that lead back in these tertiary streets, quite extraordinary, quite beautiful into these interior courtyards. This is, these are the Alcazar gardens that we see here. And then Madrid, which does not appear in literature until the late 10th century. It's a later city. It's not Roman. Uh, it was a burg. There was a fortified castle uh, that was built up here on the hill. And actually looking this way, and we can sort of squint our eyes, and we can see right in here uh, this sort of service town or burg that was actually built in association with it. It was later conquered by the Moorish invaders. It kind of flipped back and forth. It had quite a complex history. And it was not until Philippe II in 1561 moved the imperial court to here that, in fact, uh, Madrid became the official capital of, um, of, um, of Spain. Um, if we look at this in some detail, we can outline more or less the site of the Berg here, this red line that we see. But my focus is here on the Plaza Mayor. That's Mayor. In English, there would be a J instead of a Y, so it would be Major. Mayor, Mayor, um, Mayor of the city, the Major. And uh, this was actually a market that developed uh, just outside of the old wall of the Berg. It was an Arab marketplace. And um, it ultimately would go through a complete transformation when these Renaissance ideas began to be imported into Spain. And I want to mention this because we see then how these ideas are taken from here and then inserted into the New World um, by law, actually, um, in North and South America. This is the Plaza Mayor as it um, sort of was initiated, as, it, as it's built out today, initiated in 1589, uh, not completed until 1616. Uh, we have a statue in the center, very familiar to us by now, an equestrian statue. There we see it, almost as if it's been sort of cut out of the fabric of the city. Keep in mind that the city grew around it so that the, uh, the extent of the burg was sort of right in here. This was this sort of open field, like the Piazza del Campo in Siena. And um, the city then de de grew around this as it developed. The major building opening onto the plaza, now we're using the Spanish term for plaza, place, piazza, plaza, opening onto the plaza, is actually the guild of the bakers, who were, believe it or not, the most powerful guild um, at this point in time in all of Spain because they had wrested the authority away from the crown to set the price of grain. I, I still can't believe they let them do that. That's sort of like um, having no controls over uh, what uh, a virtual monopoly, say Georgia Power, could charge you for electricity, right? No control at all. Um, so <laughs> if you wanted bread, you had to go through these guys. Thus, they were very powerful. They were really the power to some degree, behind behind the throne. Um, also, Spain developed uh, in the north, developed, um, this is Santa Fe, not New Mexico, Santa Fe, Spain, 
developed uh, similar to what we see in France and parts of England, these bastides, these military towns that were intended to, uh, that were planned, that uh, follow these kind of Renaissance principles that we see here. There you can see the core of it with this kind of central plaza and these four main streets, again, following sort of Vitruvian principles to some degree. So these ideas are, are brought into the New World, and they're implanted in the New World, but seldom, um, it was long, you know, it was far away from the home base, and so seldom did these things go as planned. The Spanish were by far the most active, um, coming out of Castile uh, and uh, ultimately down into Sevilla, uh, this crazy Italian um, navigator from Genoa who had visions uh, telling him he could get to China on his deathbed. He uh, finally admitted that he probably had not been to China. He thought maybe he had been to India. Uh, he, he had no idea where he was ever. And the amazing thing about it is that he did it four times, um, and he did it using dead reckoning. In other words, just following the sun. But even more remarkable is he made it back. Right? I mean, that's the most <laughs> remarkable thing. Um, across open ocean in three little boats. Um, well, why Spain? Um, he had gone around all the courts of Europe trying to find financial backing uh, for this voyage. Why trying to get to China? Because if you could control, if you could get to China without having to go over the land routes, then you could control the silk trade. And if you controlled the silk trade, you had a huge economic advantage on your competitors, right? And who are the competitors? England, France, Italy, et cetera, the principates of Germany, the remnants of the old um, Holy Roman Empire. So um, there was also at this point in time in 1453 a kind of um, the fall of Constantinople. Um, Constantinople finally fell in 1453, which cut off the land routes. So Ferdinand and Isabella, the four kingdoms came together to fight the Moors. They ultimately, this reconquista that we see here, they came down eventually pushing them back over to the port of Sota and into North Africa. And in the sort of fervor that had to do with the unification of these four kingdoms, the kingdom of Castile, kingdom of Aragon, um, kingdom of, um, I forget what that one was, but, but Portugal never came into the mix. And I'm sure Ferdinand and Isabella thought, you know, this guy's crazy. But then at some point over dinner, they must have had a conversation that went something like this. Well, what's this going to actually cost us? I mean, it's probably not much more than, um, you know, that wedding we paid for last week, right? And what if he's right? What if, in fact, he can get to China and we can open up trade routes to China, which would then give us a huge economic advantage over uh, the French and over particularly the British? Well, um, so they paid for three boats. He took off, you know, several months later, about a year later, he shows back up again. Wow, they never expected to see him again. Um, and, um, of course, he made up all kinds of wonderful stories about gold and cities of gold and all these wonderful people and 
this land that was so fertile that you could do anything with it and so forth. And this sort of created then this push to sort of go out and conquer this territory, which they did. This is actually the building where, when he came back, he met with the king and the queen of Spain. I think that's remarkable. It's in Barcelona. Well, the first um, place he hit was um, what is now the Dominican Republic. This is the island of Hispaniola. It's where the term Hispanic actually comes from. And um, the city that was built here, the settlement that was built, is uh, Santo Domingo. It is the oldest European colonial enterprise in the Americas. Um, he had no idea where he was. He finally, as I said, on his deathbed admitted he might have actually been to India. No idea. Um, this was then um, changed, and um, um, the city that we see here, this map actually showing the second city um, that was built there. The initial settlement was established in 1494. This map dates to 1671. Um, well, this is, um, you know, basically off the coast of Florida. So if you can imagine trying to control a territory um, <laughs> as large as all of South and Central America, including most of California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, um, Florida, so on, uh, you would have a pretty hard time imagining you could do that from this building, right? There's no internet, there's no courier, nothing. So um, they passed laws in 1573 called the Laws of the Indies, which were intended to then be a code book that would govern all the colonial settlements. And uh, they got three, there were three types of cities we'll come to in a moment. But they got the church, particularly the Jesuit order of the Roman church, involved, um, and, um, and soldiers, army, troops. Uh, this is very different uh, from what we will see in the English colonies where um, they were pretty much kind of on their own. So it's, it's, it creates a different thing. Now, what they found when these conquistadores found cities, um, in some cases, I mean, there wasn't much in Florida, but in some cases, um, like here, for example, uh, in Peru, Cusco, the capital of the Incan Empire, uh, or here in uh, what emerges as Mexico City, they found cities, real cities, cities that had obviously been planned. Uh, Cusco looks a lot like um, one of those Minoan cities with a sort of royal, a sort of royal compound that we see up here associated also with the religion, the sort of ruler and the gods were, you know, was ruling by divine right. That played a very important role in the Spanish ability to take them over, too. Um, very important. Uh, but, but it was familiar to them. I mean, it had a wall, it had blocks, it had streets, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and in some cases, they simply overrode it. In other words, tore that down and built a church, built a plaza like a plaza mayor, um, in the case of uh, Mexico City, which was actually on an island in a lake, uh, they tore the whole thing down and filled in the lake. Um, so uh, here at uh, Cajamarca, um, on the upper left, we actually see then the core of this Spanish colonial city, uh, 
developed according to these laws of the Indies. And it was here, in fact, that um, the Spanish, with uh, I think four cannon and about 130 troops, managed to take over an army of uh, estimated to be about 800,000 people. I mean, incredible. Uh, they'd never seen a man ride a horse. They'd never seen anybody fire a cannon. But in the confusion, um, when they accidentally actually fired the cannon, uh, they managed to capture the, um, the, the king. And in the Incan civilization, the king uh, was literally the mouthpiece of the gods, and therefore um, nobody knew what to do. In other words, there was no second-in-command. There was no backup mechanism, right? So the king was actually imprisoned uh, in a building here, and, um, and then eventually the Spanish just sort of took over, took over the whole thing. And this is what it looks like today. And, um, but Cusco, for example, we see these remarkable streets, blocks, houses, uh, things that they simply left intact and then re-inscribed with their own institutions over the top of that. Um, I think I mentioned in this course earlier, I used to get amused by the SAE house over here, which is next to the East Architecture Building, and, I would, and that used to be a parking lot over there. I used to come that way every day to work, and every once in a while I would notice that the lion in front of the SAE house had been painted red and black, right? Because somebody from Athens had come over and painted it, sort of like writing their name over the top of these other guys, you see. Um, Sort of tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, um, that's, you know, it would disappear for a week and it would come back and be painted red and black. And that's what happens here. We have a temple here to the sun, an Incan town site believed to have been a temple to the sun god, which was the top guy. And um, they just simply built over the top of it. And in one case, actually putting a church right on top of the temple, actually remodeling the temple. Same thing we see in Rome when it converts to Christianity. Exactly the same thing. The Curia, right, or the Basilica, or any of these buildings that were associated with Roman institutions are simply reinscribed and built over. Uh, and that's what we're seeing here. But if we look at the architecture, it, it's not really Spanish. It's, it's a mixture of things which includes uh, Incan, indigenous uh, elements, Mozarabic, that is the Al-Andalus, Moorish uh, elements. Uh, there are porches, for example, today in Turkey that look a lot like this. Um, and then these Italian Renaissance principles, this dome, this shell dome here that we see um, sort of attached to this, and this strange kind of fusion that occurs long away, far away from the scene of where the rules were actually made. Now, in the laws of the Indies, there were provisions made for three types of Spanish colonial cities. The first was the Presidio. The Presidio was a military settlement. Uh, this is the Presidio of San Francisco, which uh, California, which um, actually the Golden Gate Bridge is right here. It's still a section called the Presidio in San Francisco today, although this is completely gone. It was later put into use as, um, as uh, during World War I as a U.S. Army base. And then uh, only recently, within the last decade, it was uh, released by the military, by the United States government, released for um, real estate development. They sold it. And um, there's actually a forest preserve and other things there. It's really quite intelligent what they've done. That was the Presidio. 
The second type is the Pueblo. Now, once the area had the troops in it, once it was sort of secured, like one of these Bastides, it was then um, necessary at some point to set up an administrative capital. Uh, the oldest one in what is now the United States, of course, is Santa Fe and New Mexico. And um, this is actually uh, the Pueblo, this, the administrative capital of the Pueblo. This is the second type uh, of city. And in some cases, um, the uh, military, the Presidio, and the Pueblo were completely separate, as in San Francisco. Um, in some cases, they were joined, such as at St. Augustine in, um, in, in Florida, where we see, actually, this is an English map after they took it over in 17, after the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1715. But here we have the Castillo de San Marcos, and here we actually have... Um, what the British call the parade, but what would have been the Plaza Mayor, that would have had a church. There we see the church, uh, baboom, facing out onto it. Uh, Buenos Aires, the same thing. If we look down here, the plaza, originally Plaza Mayor, now named after a famous person, memorial. And then here we have the um, Presidio. Here they are, they are joined. Uh, and then the third type is the mission. So the first type is military presidio. The second type is the administrative capital, the residential part, and so forth. That's the Pueblo. And the third part is the mission. These were typically founded by the Jesuits. Uh, their primary purpose was to convert uh, the indigenous population to Christianity, uh, one way or another. Uh, this is actually Bolivia, San Jose, Bolivia, in uh, 1573. This is a model of it that's actually but the diagram is in uh, the Morris book. Um, another one that's more familiar to us, a little closer to home, is in San Antonio, Texas, um, which is the mission of San Antonio de Valero, um, which saw, served as a home for converted Indians and their Christian missionaries in the late 1700s. We are more familiar with its colloquial name, the Alamo, which uh, played an important part in the War of Independence from uh, Mexico uh, that Texas fought in the 1830s. This is actually a map of the land use. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. You had a walled compound with the church and all the things associated with it, almost like a monastic compound with this large plaza and then these kind of residential blocks that we see um, out here. So these are the three types, the Pueblo, um, the Presidio, and the Mission. And in some cases, such as San Antonio, Texas, these are actually joined together eventually through a process of Sinoicism. Um, initially, there was the Presidio of San Antonio de Bejar in uh, 1718. Uh, the same year, the mission of San Antonio de Valero um, was built across the river. And then eventually, by 1730, attached to the Presidio, uh, the wall came down and the Pueblo was built. Uh, the plaza that we see here today is actually where the county courthouse is actually located. So it looks something like this with the San Antonio River, which was a naturally flooding river, with the Presidio um, on the south end. This is actually, I'm sorry, north is to your left here. I'm sorry. So um, the um, so that would be what? The west end and then uh, the mission uh, actually here uh, on, the, on the east end, uh, just out of the flood zone. And then obviously because there's communication back and forth, there's a kind of trail, there's a bridge built at some point across the river, and there's a sort of uh, tra you know, trail that, that develops and eventually will develop as a, the commercial street 
um, in the 18th century. This is actually the original plan with the church looking out on the Plaza Mayor uh, that we see here of the Pueblo of San Antonio. And there we see how it's grafted onto the Presidio. Uh, the church is actually the red thing that we see down here. Eventually then, uh, this sort of vernacular town begins to develop outside the official confines of the mission and outside the official confines of the Pueblo along um, the street where the bridge was ultimately built. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, two things here. One is, some of you are, is anybody here from San, San Antonio? No? Uh, has anybody been to San Antonio? You know the famous river walk? Okay. Well, that's the original river. The problem is it kept flooding. So in the 1930s, under the Works Progress Administration, the Roosevelt Administration, they actually built this sort of um, bypass that we see cutting through here, allowing this to become essentially a flood control device that then later, uh, in the late 1970s, it began to be developed as this kind of entertainment district called the Riverwalk, as it is today. So here we look at a modern map, and we can see here the mission that we see up here. There it is. And we see the church right down here, which is here. And then we see the Bexar County uh, Courthouse, uh, Bayhar County Courthouse that we see here that was built in the 19th century. This is what the mission looked like. And then the plaza that we see around it, uh, the Crockett Hotel, this department store, there's Woolworths across the street, now gone. But this more or less conforms to the wall of the mission. Uh, the church itself is directly 90 degrees to the left in this photograph. There we actually see um, part of that wall that is, um, that is right down where the red uh, arrow is pointing. And then the river walk itself. And um, we are out of time, and so we will have to come pick up on the French colonial settlements. Um, what is today? Wednesday? On Friday. Okay? <laughs>